Thank you for listening to the Calvary Monterey podcast. Please visit calvary.com to learn more about our church and visit nateholdridge.com for additional Bible teaching from our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. Teaching today is our lead pastor, Nate Holdridge. All right, good morning, everyone. Hey, let's take out our Bibles today and turn to uh, Psalm 2. Psalm 2, last week we started a summer in the Psalms series. It'll probably take us through Psalm 8 over the next eight weeks. But uh, today, Psalm 2 is where we're at. And as you're turning there, um, probably I should address the fact that Pastor Nate did get a haircut. (laughs) I wanted to point that out to you guys. Uh, when, when a man my age uh, cuts his hair like this, it's usually because um, his hair is thinning a little bit or his hairline is receding and he's trying to beat it to the punch. Obviously, I did it because Justin Bieber did it earlier this year. Um, but um, this is me. So there you have it. Uh, A little tutorial for you, though, that might be helpful. When somebody does cut their hair like this, don't say, did you lose a bet? Or why did you do that? Say, man, that looks good on you. That's that's the way to roll. All right, Psalm 2 today is our passage. Last week, Psalm 1, I mean, to me, it's my favorite of all the Psalms. It's so beautiful. Uh, Today, this psalm is, um, I don't know if confrontational is the right word, but it really does paint a picture of a contrast between the Psalm 1 life and the way so many want to go. So let's read it together and try to ask God to give us sensitive hearts to receive from it. Verse 1, why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell, verse 7, of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, verse 10, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. All right, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your holy word. And we want to be a people, Lord, who are not rushing or trying to figure out ways to cast off your good, holy bonds and restraints, the way that you've designed us to live. We don't want to cast that off, but Lord, we recognize the tendency of our hearts to do so. We instead want to be a people who run towards you, kiss the son, honor the son, receive the gospel message daily, really in a sense, preaching it to ourselves and living it out in our everyday lives. So we pray, Lord, for your help in understanding 
uh, this song. Thank you for being honest with us in your word, including in this passage. We thank you, Lord, for your word. Help us by your spirit. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the courtroom of life, many people think that God is the defendant, that God needs to give a defense of himself to humanity, to our arguments, our accusations, our logic. This psalm, though, does not picture God in that way at all. In this song, it's humanity that is questioned. The questions of this passage aren't, why does God do this or not do that? Or why does God allow this or allow that? The question instead of this song, it's a serious question. It's, why do people struggle against God? Now, the answer that the passage gives us is that we want to be free. We have the wrong idea of what freedom really would look like, but we want to be free. This psalm presents humanity as trying to resist its creator, seeking to cast off the restraints that he has designed for humanity to live in and operate under. In verse 1, for instance, it says that the nations rage. That word rage is a kind of word that would be used to describe a horse that with adrenaline is raging and rushing into battle. Peoples in verse 1 are depicted as plotting against God himself. And in verse 2 and 3, the kings of The world, the rulers of the earth, people in positions of authority are pictured as devising strategies to get rid of God and the bonds and the cords, the restrictions that God has designed. In other words, according to this psalm, and I think other passages of scriptures I'll try to show you in a moment, humanity in general and political and commercial leaders in particular are pictured as striving to break from God's leadership. Uh, They're like the ocean, battling against the seashore, battling against the land. Humanity here is presented as raging against the boundaries that God has established. But you might have noticed that the psalm also tells us in those opening verses that it's not only against God that these things are happening, but against the Lord and his anointed. Who is this figure? Who is this anointed that David, as the likely songwriter, speaks of? Well, the word anointed is a a royal word. It's a royal title. Uh, The original Israelite singers were hearers of this song, they would have thought of someone like David, who, as I said, probably wrote this song. Every uh, king from David onward in Israel was anointed for their task. And so were, by the way, prophets and priests. They were anointed for the job that God had given to them. So at first glance, you might want to think that what David is saying or what they're singing about is they're saying, you know, here's ancient Israel. Uh, We were delivered from Egypt. We went out into the wilderness. 
And on Mount Sinai, we received the Ten Commandments and the ceremonial law of God. Moses came down. He delivered that law to us. Now we're in the promised land. We're living out that law that God has given to us. And we have a king now, our anointed, and the nations all around us hate that law, won't receive that law. So they're raging against the Lord God and his anointed, his king, uh, who's on the throne in Jerusalem. But the statements that God makes to his anointed in this passage, I think, rule out that possibility. Because... The anointed in this passage receives things that David and no other Israelite king ever received or could ever receive. I mean, in verse 8 and 9, it speaks of the anointed someday as having dominion over the whole world. All the nations of the earth coming under his leadership and charge. And total domination of those who would not receive his leadership. Now, the early church, thankfully, they interacted with this song a lot, and they wrote about it in the New Testament. And they understood this song to be about someone larger than David or any Israelite king. They understood it to be about Jesus. To them, Jesus is the ultimate descendant of David, the real anointed one, the future ruler of all nations. And Jesus seemed to agree with this concept, that he is the anointed. For instance, when he arrived, he made a point of quoting from the book of Isaiah when he said in Luke 4:18, "The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me." He knew that he had an anointing, a calling from God. So for us today, we understand that King Jesus has come. The kingdom is now at hand. The anointed has arrived, the Messiah has appeared. Now, the psalm is clearly also anticipating not just that the anointed has come, but that the anointed will come because it's alluding to the day when, as we learn in places like the book of Revelation, Jesus will be revealed as the King of kings and as the Lord of lords. So in a sense, what the psalm is doing is showing Jesus as the ideal king. And this was important during Israel's monarchy, especially because they had so many duds of kings, failures of kings, even many who started out well, who then faded later. Inevitably, even the best kings would let them down. But this psalm is promising a day when the best king, the purest king, the holiest king would arrive and rule. So, Everything that the psalm is describing, the tumult, the rebellion, the resistance against God, what it's describing is a resistance against God the Father and God the Son. Now, I don't mean to pick a fight. I don't mean to be incendiary when I say this, but I'd be unfaithful as a Bible teacher not to say that it seems like we should think a little bit about our modern world with this verse one through three description of people who want to cast off God's restraints. Paul the apostle went ahead and gave that same kind of concept in Romans chapter one. For instance, 
he kicked off his thoughts there by saying in Romans 1.18 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What he went on to say is that this truth suppression means that plainly known things about God are not acknowledged, so God is not honored, and as a result, feudal thinking rushes into humanity like a flood to take its place. People, Paul said in Romans 1.25, end up worshiping the creature rather than the creator. So what God does, according to Paul, is give humanity up to dishonorable passions, including sexual passions that are out of step with the clear anatomical and biological boundaries that God created. Human thinking, according to Paul, is turned upside down and people start approving harmful practices. Now, like I said, I'm not trying to pick a fight here by pointing out passages like these, but this seems to be what the text is trying to tell us. You know, in 2018, in a Golden Globes uh, speech, Oprah Winfrey said that the most powerful tool that you have is to speak your truth. Now, when she said that, to be fair, in the context of her speech, she was imploring abused women to talk about their experiences, and that's good advice. But the issue I have is with the idea of your truth. Their experiences are the truth. And we have to be careful with the words that we speak because we live in a world where people might think that your truth is not my truth. Instead, it would be good for us to come back to reality, the one with the truth. I think our age is a little bit like being a new deckhand on a boat that is setting sail to cross the Pacific Ocean. You're that new deckhand, and as you're traveling in the middle of the night, you begin noticing that the boat is going around in circles. There's no straight destination. You're going north and south and east and west, and you realize we're not making it very far. So you approach the captain and you say, hey, I don't know if your GPS is out, but I can tell even just from the stars that we're not making progress across the Pacific Ocean. The captain then says to you, oh, don't worry, on this boat, we navigate a little bit differently than most other boats. What we do is we hang a lantern out off the front of the bow, the, the, the front of the boat, the bow of the boat, and we just follow that light of the lantern wherever it leads us. <laughs> That's precisely what it's like when you follow your heart. Live out your truth or be true to yourself. But this is the condition that humanity is born into. We often want to cast off the restraints of God. You know, you'll sometimes hear that Christianity is uh, popular amongst its adherents because they have an emotional motivation to believe that God exists, an emotional motivation to believe in the gospel. For instance, uh, the accusation or the charge might be that the, the reason there are Christians in the first place is because, you know, they're just a people who they, they want some kind of assurance about life after death. 
Uh, they want some kind of comfort in the here and now about those that they love who have died. Uh, they need to make sense of suffering in some way. They want to be comforted about the meaning of life. They don't want to feel alone, so they love feeling that God is with them at all times, you know, kind of thing. The charge is that for Christians, emotional motives prime us for belief. And I think if we're honest, we have to say a lot of times that's true. There are intense emotional advantages to submitting your life to Jesus. But what this psalm shows us is that there are also emotional motivations not to believe in God and his gospel. For many, the desire to live as they please is a strong motivation that primes them to look for any clue, any evidence at all to not believe in God. But if what you believe requires little change of you, little change to your life, if it just permits you to do whatever your heart desires or is inclined to do, I suggest that might be a clue that you've created the belief system in which you've adopted. But either way, Christians or non-Christians alike, we have to ditch the idea that we're going to decide based on emotional motivations and inspect Christianity for itself. The 19th century English preacher Charles Spurgeon, he said this, he said that for some, the yoke of Christ is intolerable, but to others, it's easy and light. He went on to say, we may judge ourselves by this. Do we love his yoke or do we wish to cast it from us? So the opening lyrics of the song, they show us a humanity at odds with its creator. Now, I want to look at how God responds, what God's attitude is in response. But I do want to mention that this is highlighting a truth in the Bible, but not the only truth in the Bible about humanity. Now, there is such a thing as common grace, and all of us are, have fallen short of the glory of God. So we have to remember that we should expect in a fallen and broken world to also see good and ingenuity and creativity and beauty in some of the cultures that we live in. But this psalm is highlighting the deep lostness of humanity. Okay, so how does God respond to this desire of human beings to cast off his restraint? It says in verse four through six, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now, the song is written in four movements. Uh, four stanzas, four verses, if you will. And this second stanza, it's like the camera uh, swipes quickly from looking at humanity to, boom, quickly looking at God. How does God respond to all the chaos and rebellion uh, within the human condition? How does God respond? You know, as he's scrolling through the attitudes of humanity, uh, what does he do? Well, it says here, firstly, that he laughs. He laughs. Uh, this is poetry. So the psalmist is giving us a poetic description of God in human terms. He's sitting in the heavens. That speaks of his confidence. He's not 
dethroned at all by anyone who would wish for him to be dethroned. And he's laughing at the attempt of mankind to live as if he does not exist. It's like he uses the crying face emoji to communicate his feelings. Like, really? All right, that's my response. There's no way that humanity can push him all the way out so he laughs in response. And in verse five and six, in his wrath and fury, God simply does what God wants to do. He installs his king onto his holy mountain. This means that God is moving forward with his plans regardless of how humanity feels about him. It's like the psalmist is depicting God as one who needs no hall pass, needs no permission, needs to win no election to just do what he is planning on doing. One day, all the kingdoms and philosophies of this world will fade and God has declared that his kingdom and his ethics will cover the earth like the water covers the sea. Isaiah 11 verse 9. God is simply going to carry out his purpose no matter how human beings feel about it. And what God will do according to this psalm is install his king, his son, to rule the kingdom. The psalm tells us that this is certain because God has set it in the form of a decree. So what is that decree? Well, that's the third movement of the song in verse seven through nine. So let's read it again together. He says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son today. I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Okay, so the decree, according to verse seven, that God makes is that his son, Jesus, will one day reign over everything. On that day, verse eight tells us, Jesus is going to ask the father and all the nations, all the way to the ends of the earth will become his. He will, according to verse nine, take this possession by first apparently confronting the rebellion against God that is mentioned in the opening of the song and break it in verse nine with a rod of iron and dash it in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, probably this imagery is borrowed from the Egyptian pharaohs. They had a practice that they would carry out from time to time when a city or nation that they were oppressing tried to rebel against them or when a city or nation tried to attack them generally. And what these pharaohs would do is they would send their military power, they would usually win the battle, and then in symbolism, they would go into a room that was filled with clay pots and they would take a rod or a scepter and they would smash those pots. It was like they were saying, my authority, my power is going to crush this pot just as my authority and my power, my power is going to crush the rebellion that has been attempted against me. And what's pictured here is that when Christ returns, everything 
in rebellion against him. Everything out of step with who he is and God's nature and character, all the death and sin and injustice and prejudice, all of that will bow before him as he rules with that same rod of iron. Now what's being pictured here is a buildup of human history to an abrupt point where King Jesus is revealed, conquers, and then reigns supreme. I don't know if you've ever taken a Coca-Cola and put it in the freezer to try to make it colder quicker because you didn't have it in the refrigerator, you just had it in the cupboard or something, and then you forgot that you put a Coke in there. You know what happens because it's a carbonated beverage, it begins to expand and eventually it explodes there in the freezer. The idea here is that our world is undergoing a similar process. God is long-suffering, but a moment will come when humanity's incongruence with him can be tolerated no longer. And at that point, Christ will put down everything that is out of step with himself and become ruler of all. And because humanity is not depicted as those who are going to say, Jesus, we want you to lead, lead us, because he won't be invited to do so, he must come with the rod of iron. He must come with force to take his rightful position. Now, as I'm saying these things, it might sound to some of you like a far cry from the gospel of grace that we preach today. But what I want you to know is that especially in its Psalm 2 setting, this is abundantly good news. Think about it. What are depicted here are kings of the earth who stir people up, who lead them in the wrong direction. And though the kings of the earth do this and the corporations of the world align themselves against God, what's depicted here is a king leader who will be consistently good and pure. This is good news. In his book, Strange Days, Life in the Spirit in a Time of Upheaval, Pastor author Mark Sayers wrote, the good news is that God is no cynic who delights in human misery and mayhem. Instead, he has a plan. Psalm 2 speaks of a Davidic earthly king whom God chooses and promises, I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. Psalm 2 verse 8. This is no king of the world who rebels against God and sows discord. Instead, this king is God's son, ruling from God's holy mountain. All right, but what qualifies Jesus to take that position of worldwide leadership as the king of kings and lord of all lords? Well, it's found in verse seven. It says that God said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. You're my son, today I have begotten you. Now. If we had no understanding of the passage's background, we might think that what God is doing is pointing to the beginning point of Jesus' existence. As if Jesus did not exist in the past and then a moment came where he began to exist. And that view would be problematic for us as Christians because our gospel and our theology depend upon a triune God, complete with a son who as the second person of the Trinity took the judgment from the first person of the Trinity as a substitute for all of us. He died for us. 
But the context of the psalm shows us that this is not a birth psalm. It's not a beginning psalm. It's a coronation psalm. Kings were begotten into their kingly position on the day of their anointing. So when Jesus was anointed, when Jesus was begotten, uh, how, how did that happen? When did that occur? How was Jesus anointed for his role as king? Well, you might have a lot of different episodes from the life of Jesus flashing in your mind right now. I mean, when he was born, that was pretty epic, right? I mean, I know it was a lot of anonymity there in Bethlehem, but there were also some cool signs and wonders that followed it. You know, the wise men arriving, the star, the angels out in the field singing a song to the shepherds, the shepherds arriving. So you might think of that moment. Or maybe you're thinking of Jesus's baptism. Remember, he came out of the water being baptized by his forerunner and cousin, John the Baptist, and the spirit descended upon him. And the father said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Uh, you might even be thinking of the cross itself. Jesus, when he died, he shouted at the end of his six hours on the cross, it is finished and breathed his last. And with that, the earth shook and the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You might think of some of those events as perhaps the event that caused Jesus to be begotten or anointed, declared the future king who would rule over all. But the New Testament saints, they wrote about Psalm 2 and they understood Jesus's resurrection to be the thing that caused him to become the begotten or the anointed king who will rule over all. Paul the apostle said it this way in a sermon that he preached in Acts 13. He said to those listening, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So it's the resurrection of Jesus that according to Psalm 2 is the moment where Christ was begotten for that rightful role as the king of the universe. Uh, a friend of mine pastors down in Southern California and he uh, happens to pastor the church that uh, retired Hall of Fame uh, baseball announcer Vin Scully. He announced for the Los Angeles Dodgers for many years. It's where Vin Scully goes to church. And one Easter, when uh, before Vin was retired, uh, he was there early for Easter service with his wife, and they were sitting there. So my friend approached him, and you know, was a little starstruck and nervous, you know. So he he knew that the next day was opening day of baseball season, and so he said to Vin, "He's like big day tomorrow, right?" And uh, Vin said to him, "Well, today's an even bigger day, Pastor." And it was Easter Sunday, but my pastor friend was pretty confused and kind of starstruck. And so he's like, oh man, maybe I mistook what opening day was. Maybe it's today. What, what are the Dodgers doing today? So he asked him, he's like, why, why, what's today? Why, what's today? He kept asking him, what's today? And finally, in his Hall of Fame announcer voice, Vince Scully looked at him and said, well, pastor, I don't know if you've heard, but today is the day that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, rose from the dead.
That event is the event that makes Jesus the rightful heir of all things. He's been anointed and begotten to rule because he's the great savior who rose from the grave. For us as Christians, this is significant because we believe that humanity's shame and guilt, our shame and guilt that they had no remedy before God without that cross and resurrection. Death dominated us because sin dominated us. But when Jesus came, he died a brutal death in our place, but then he rose from the dead. Nobody else has ever done what he did. He might have raised others back to life only to die again, but when Jesus rose from the dead, it was all, an altogether different kind and quality of resurrection. In defeating sin and death, Jesus started a new humanity. And when we believe in him, we escape the long-term forever ramifications of sin and death, and we enter into the kingdom of King Jesus. When he reigns, it says in verse eight, he will do it among all nations and to the ends of the earth. I want you to see that there in verse eight because what this means is that Christian hope encompasses the whole world. There's not one nook or cranny in all of God's creation that Jesus will not reign supreme over. And what that means for us today is that as Christians today, we want to see his kingdom expressed in as many nooks and crannies of this universe today as possible. So we go into the places of pain and hurt and brokenness because we're confident that those are places that Jesus will be king over one day and we believe that he can be king over them today. But when Jesus does come, his leadership, his dominion will jump to the next and ultimate level. I don't know if you've ever seen an orchestra uh, play, but before they begin, uh, all the musicians come out on the stage and they begin individually tuning their instruments. And it's the one part of the night that sounds terrible. They're all kind of doing their own thing, just these, you know, these horrible sounds coming out of the stage. But then this beautiful moment comes where the conductor walks out onto the platform. They have their baton and the individual musicians coalesce into performing a transcendent symphony. That's what it will be like when Jesus returns. All the divergent philosophies and peoples of the world will respond to the great conductor and the world will operate as it was supposed to. Now, if this is God's plan, if this is God's decree, then how should we respond? Well, for that, we get God pleading with us in the final and fourth stanza of the song, verse 10 through 12. Let's read it together. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is kindled quickly, or quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now, last week, Pastor Manny taught us 
uh, from Psalm 1 about the blessed life. You know, the blessed man does not walk in the path of sinners, does not stand in the seat or the path of sinners, does not sit in the seat of the scornful. Walk in the way of the ungodly, stand in the path of sinners, sit in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. The life of blessing described there in Psalm 1. But Psalm 2 closes by describing that same blessed man. Look at it there, the last line of this chapter. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's why I've called this message today, the blessed man part two. Because we're getting a description of another facet of living the blessed life before God. And the encouragement that's given to us in that closing exhortation is to take refuge in Christ. And to me, that exhortation is fascinating because this final stanza of the song is filled with words that a lot of times many Christians are allergic to even using or thinking about God. We're to serve the Lord, it says, with fear in verse 11. We're to tremble because of his majesty, also in verse 11. We're told to kiss the son lest he be angry and we perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Like I said, these aren't phrases that Christians typically gravitate to when talking about God, but God's holiness, his wrath and his judgment are no less biblical than his love and his justice and his grace. In this closing paragraph, it is pointing us to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because though God is holy and just, we are to take refuge in him. How can we be saved, in other words, from God's judgment? The answer, according to the psalmist, is by rushing into the arms of God, which is what happens when you run to the cross. Some of you might have thought at the beginning of this psalm, oh, praise God, I'm not like the verse one through three people. And because I'm not like that, I must be saved from God's anger. But the Bible is saying here, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And the only way to be rescued from God is by running to God. English theologian and pastor Dick Lucas said it this way, unless we're saved from God's anger, we're not really saved from anything. The only place, in other words, to flee from God is to flee to God. We must run to the cross. We must throw ourselves upon his mercy. We must trust the sufficiency of Jesus to cleanse us from all our sins. And because Jesus was the only one to live that perfect Psalm 1, life in love with the law of the Lord. And because he died for us, we must run to him. We must kiss the son, as it says in this psalm. Because as it says in Acts 2, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So the psalm tells us today and every day that we must decide to live wisely and knowledgeably by honoring the son, by kissing the son. It's only by running to him that we will find rescue from him. 
It's only by receiving the benefits of his first coming that we can avoid the judgment of his second. Jesus came once as a lamb and he's coming again as a lion. And if we honor him, if we believe in him, if we trust in his work, if we submit our lives to him, he will rescue us with his lamb-like sacrifice and one day rescue us with his lion-like power. Jonathan Edwards said it this way in a sermon called The Excellency of Christ. He said, it's true that Christ has awful majesty. He is the great God and infinitely high above you. But there is this to encourage and embolden the poor sinner, that Christ is man as well as God. He is a creature as well as the creator. You may run to him and cast yourself upon him. You will certainly be graciously and meekly received by him. Though he is a lion, he will only be a lion to your enemies, but he will be a lamb to you. When World War II ended, there were beautiful scenes of celebration all over Europe. Uh, nations that were now free of Nazi tyranny were joyful because the enemy had been dealt the final fatal blow. The war was over. And as allied troops began arriving in these various towns and countries, uh, there were all kinds of iconic photos taken of citizens rushing out and greeting them and kissing them. Some of these portraits or pictures have even become statues because we want to commemorate that moment of great and final victory. These men were well received because they had won the victory for other people. Well, one day Christ will come and he will end the war of all wars. He will win the war of all wars. And in that victory, Jesus will banish all the brokenness, all the hurt, all the injustice that plagues us today. Every tear will be wiped away. There'll be no hunger or prejudice or sin or death. Everyone and everything will prosper and flourish under his glorious reign in his forever kingdom. But to sing and dance and celebrate his victory over those powers on that day, we must honor Jesus right now. We must believe that all the straining of the nations to extricate themselves from the rule of God will be for nothing. Christ is coming. He is the decreed king of all. And to kiss him on that day, we must kiss him today. Thank you for listening. If you would like more teachings and information about Calvary Monterey, please visit calvary.com. You can also find books, teachings through the Bible, and articles from our lead pastor at nateholdridge.com. Thanks again for tuning in. See you next week.